Hello and welcome back to the Study Room Podcast, where today we just bring you one topic, one piece of uh, A-level politics revision paper. One, it is tomorrow morning at 8.30 a.m. But, uh, you know, I'll get you through the content. So, let's start off with pressure groups. Now, firstly, what is a pressure group? Uh, Good question. Well, it seeks to influence government policy without actually... Uh, contending elected office or seeking elected office. Now, there's two main types of pressure groups. Sectional, which protect and promote uh, its own section of society. For example, uh, professional associations like the British Medical Institute or the RMT. And they tend to have a closed membership. Only if you're in that industry can you really join them. A causal group is another type, which campaigns for a cause or an issue that doesn't only affect its members. For example, the RSPCA or Oxfam. Uh, these have open membership within uh, their own you know, nature. Now, what are the methods that pressure groups use? Uh, they can lobby, for example, the British Banking Institute in 2012. They can research and publish reports. AA 2016 is good evidence. Give it evidence at DSCs. The AA is another good example. Publicity stunts. Extinction Rebellion does this a lot. Demonstrations. Stop the War Coalition. I'm going to one on Thursday. Uh, bring test cases to court. Amnesty, Amnesty International did this with the Pinochet case. Liberty uh, also did this. Um, now, they can also strike, like the RMT in 2012, or, you know, any given weekend. And celebrity spokespeople are uh, people that they can hire. For example, Joanna Lumley in 2009 for the Gurkha Justice Campaign. Now, what are the factors that influence pressure group success? Now, insider status means that they have close links with governments and allows them to advise uh, directly to the government. An example is the 2014 Howard League for Penal Reform, which successfully ended a ban on families sending books to inmates in prison. Wealth is another factor. Financial resources, uh, you know, that allow them to lobby and advertise, promote their cause, and, and fund it. For example... In 2012, the British Banking Association, BBA, lobbied to cut corporation taxes uh, in the UK and successfully managed to do so. Now, membership, a large control of the electorate uh, and a large membership means that there's more people to campaign and to sign petitions and to show up. Uh, The RSPCA had 500,000 for the Big Garden Birdwatch in um, 2015. The RSPB actually has more members than all uh, British uh, political parties combined. Now, organization, the management of resources and membership is an important factor. For example, the 2012 RMT strike for bonuses during the Olympics, they had a high level of organization in that. Expertise uh, means that they're more likely to be heard and uh, can respected, influencing government policy. 2016, the AA published a report on texting and driving and actually persuaded the government to increase penalties because they had expertise in that field. Now, factors uh, influencing pressure group failure, it may be that the uh, goals contradict government policy. It's hard to persuade the government if uh, you go against them, especially if they have a large mandate. For example, in 2015, the Tories wanted a seven-day NHS. This is hard for then the BMA to oppose. The government can resist pressure. This is dependent on... Parliamentary arithmetic is another factor. For example, the 2003 Stop the War Coalition mobilized 2 million people marching on Whitehall. But they, they lost to a large majority and crossbench support for the Iraq uh, invasion. 
Now, the countervailing forces may be another factor. Uh, for example, if they are against stronger groups. Example is the uh, 2009 uh, group Forest, which is the uh, anti-smoking group, which um, failed against an anti-smoking campaign by the ASH. Sorry, that was a pro-smoking group called Forest. Now, goals contradict public opinion. It's another factor. When the government may follow public opinion rather than the pressure group. For example, the 2013 Coalition for Marriage failed to prevent you know, the, the uh, legislative uh, proposal of equal marriage under law. Uh, you know, good. <laughs> uh, now, when the group alienates the public might be another reason. When there are unpopular tactics that alienate them. For example, unfortunately, trade unions are often blamed for disruptions caused or Extinction Rebellion uh, halting tube travel in 2019. Now, let's quickly just talk about why people tend to join these. They want to be represented, for example, minority interests. Fathers for Justice is an example. Gay marriage. Personal beliefs, um, if they don't feel that they're represented in political parties, because let's face it, political parties don't actually represent us. Uh, material benefits, for example, trade unions or the National Trust sites uh, that you get to visit if you're part of the National Trust. And need, for example, uh, job security and trade unions. Now, they could have insider or outsider status. Insider means they have access to government. Outsider means they don't have access to these links in government. Uh, and they tend to use public campaigns instead. So we've talked about pressure groups, but what are other organizations? There's think tanks, which attempt to make um, workable ideas into public policies. So essentially, they can form and craft a opinion and legislation to then you know, convince governments. Now, they're often privately funded and align with the government in power. An example of this is the Institute of Economic Affairs, funded uh, by the British American Tobacco Company and has close links with the Tory party. Now, lobbyists are another organization, and they essentially sell insider status. Uh, they're hired by corporations or groups to persuade uh, policy changes because they have links with actual government uh, officials. Corporations are another one. They occupy key sectors of the economy and hence hold a lot of powers. Governments can often consult uh, companies on policy, for example, McKinsey and Company uh, for the uh, uh, COVID <clears throat> crisis, and they can actually leverage um, their economic power to influence policy. For example, saying, okay, if you don't cut corporation tax, we're all you know, moving to Gibraltar or somewhere, right? Um, now, <clears throat> are pressure groups, grips, yes. Are pressure grips, yes. Pressure groups, are they good for democracy? Well, uh, yes, because they have a pluralist participation. They enhance this, allowing uh, many different venues and access points to governments. This is pluralism. Uh, they, they provide expert knowledge, hence educating the public um, on things and you know, bringing knowledge to light. Uh, the, again, uh, 2003 Stop the War Coalition, the current Stop the War Coalition, too. Voice uh, to minority interests, for example, the Gurkha Justice Campaign, Fathers for Justice. And they can essentially oppose and scrutinize government policy. Uh, 2003 Stop the War Coalition, good example of this. So again, they pr provide scrutiny. In which ways are they bad for democracy? Well, when they're sectional groups, they can go at against the public interest. For example, uh, the British Banking Association. Now... They can also be elitist, 
for example, the British Banking Association, um, meaning that they don't actually represent the interests of broader society. Now, single issue, um, you know, that they present can actually divert uh, election enthusiasm. Again, for example, the RSPB is larger than all parties combined. This means that, you know, if you're saying, okay, you know, I'll campaign with Extinction Rebellion for climate change, you're less enthusiastic, perhaps, about voting because you're already participating in another form. And they can provide misleading information. Uh, for example, the pro-smoking lobby or the British Banking Association. Um, because economics and ridiculous nature of it. Anyway, moving on to rights in the UK. Now, let's make a little differentiation at first. Civil rights is the protection by government. Um, and civil liberties is the protection from government power. Now, pressure groups, in which ways do they protect rights? So let's go through this as an essay plan. Firstly, pressure groups protect rights, yes. Liberty is one pressure group, um, and it advocates to pr protect uh, civil rights. Now, the methods they use is research investigation on rights abuses and media campaigns. They bring legal challenges and give legal support. They advise legislation to ensure it complies with the Human Rights Act, and they've, uh, they sign petitions due to their large membership. Now, what successes has Liberty, uh, as a pressure group, faced? Now, in the courts, um, they've found successes. In 2017, there was a successful legal challenge uh, in the Supreme Court on the Equality Act loophole that allowed firms to not provide equal provisions for same-sex couples as uh, heterosexual couples. Now, the Supreme Court, uh, called, yes, court <laughs> ruled this as unlawful, again, a success. Now, um, public pressure... They, in the 2015, the Save the HRA Human Rights Act uh, campaign opposed the Tory manifesto to replace uh, the Human Rights Act with the British Bill of Rights. And subsequently, uh, the British Bill of Rights hasn't appeared in any subsequent manifesto, and the HRA is still in place. However, the Tories still use this as a talking point, but it's not in a manifesto, that's good. Um, now, in 20. 12, they actually use party links. Uh, so the 2012 campaign against public um, dis yeah, disclosure of non-disclosable evidence in the uh, Justice and Security Bill of 2012, the head of liberty at the time, Shami Chakrabarti, uh, attended the Lib Dem conference uh, you know, at their party uh, conference and convinced the party to pass a motion against the bill. Now, what are the failures of liberty? Well, in 2012, despite uh, this um, Lib Dem motion, the bill was passed in 2013 with those non-disclosure elements still in place. Again, it's dependent on parliamentary arithmetic and parliamentary sovereignty. 2019, the Court of Appeals rejected a legal case to, present, to prevent a no-deal Brexit brought by liberty. Second paragraph, uh, Supreme Court protects rights in the UK. Now, the HRA in 1998 made many issues justiciable uh, due to the um, human rights implications of them. Now, this allows judges to find any public authority which um, acts in contravention with the HRA. It allows the Supreme Court also to interpret existing legislation. For example, in 2009, GV um, God in... Oh, sorry. <laughs> 2004, G.V. Godin versus Mendozin, um, law lords reinterpreted the 1977 
Rent Act, so it applied to gay couples when not possible, uh, it can also declare them as incompatible. In 2014, R versus the um, Secretary of State for the Home Department, the Supreme Court ruled that the inclusion of uh, minor convictions and cautions in the Enhanced Criminal Record Checks of the Police Act of 1997 incorporated with Article 8 of the Human Rights Act to Privacy. Uh, it was incompatible with the Article 8 of the Human Rights Act to Privacy. Because, Parli- and then, uh, because of this ruling, Parliament actually amended the law with uh, remedial order. Remedial order is a provision of the Human Rights Act which allows... Parliament to uh, quickly amend legislation that is deemed as incompatible. However, parliamentary sovereignty is still in place. For example, the 2004 Belmarsh case, it was declared as uh, they, you know, the law lords declared that the indefinite detention is incompatible with Article 14 of the ECHR because um, the act is discriminating against non-British people. Uh, However, then the Parliament introduced the Prevention of Terrorism Act of 2005, replacing these discriminatory elements with control orders, which control where uh, people can live, work, what they can possess, and who they talk to, and where they can travel, uh, essentially with the same effect. In 2007, another issue is that the Supreme Court ruled that 18-hour curfews undermined the Human Rights Act, but then they also accepted 14-hour curfews. Now, statute law... Can, be chal- uh, can actually challenge common law. For example, uh, as, as we saw in this uh, 2004 Belmarsh case and the 2005 uh, Prevention of Terrorism Act that came in place, right, the statute law, came in to challenge it. Now, a third paragraph and a final paragraph is that equal rights are established in statute law in the UK. Uh, in 2010, the Equality Act, the 1998 Human Rights Act, 2000 Freedom of Information Act, 1965, Murder Act, 2013 Marriage Act, the 67 Abortion Act, and the 68 Race Relations Act all provided uh, protections for uh, equal rights in the UK. However, these aren't uh, enshrined or codified, and they're all subject to parliamentary interpretation. An example of this is the recent uh, 2019 Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act, which, um, you know, kind of goes against these provisions. And um, also, they can all be suspended. For example, the Human Rights Act, uh, roughly in 2003, and in 2005, uh, because of this, again, statute law, replacing uh, it. Okay, moving next up to voter behavior and media influence on it. Now, we're going to structure this uh, chronologically, because I think that's uh, possibly a good way of doing this. Let's start off with the 1979 general election. Now, let's give a bit of context to this. So, the winter of discontent that just happened due to a wage restraint imposed by Callahan's government of 5% collapsed when Ford and BBC workers secured a 15% and 17% pay rises due to strikes. Uh, In January 1979, 1.5 million public sector workers were on strike. Tavarishi, comrades, yes. Uh, Now, (laughs) the... How does the media play into this? Well, the Prime Minister, Callahan, was blasted in the sun uh, for saying, crisis, what crisis, on return from an economic uh, conference in Guadalupe. Um, Now, again, this provided an image of him being out of touch uh, to voters. TV coverage played an important position uh, for possibly the largest time, uh, as in first times, 
in general elections because all three parties held morning press conferences. Margaret Thatcher worked hard to provide photo opportunities, for example, cuddling a newborn calf or having tea in a factory. David Steele was actually criticized for shooting pictures in narrow streets to make it look like he had more supporters. Um, now, for uh, now, the former Labour Prime Minister Wilson uh, also conceded that his wife would vote Tory uh, because Margaret Thatcher was a woman. Now, a bit of a gaffe uh, in the media, but again, it shows uh, the influence of the media. Now, TV coverage, uh, you know, played an important factor, Callahan being blasted in the sun, but also we saw the rise in PR firms. The Tories embushed, uh, I do not know the word in English, hired, that's the word, they hired Saatchi and Saatchi uh, for the Labour Isn't Working campaign, which essentially highlighted the feeling that a lot of people um, uh, kind of, you know, felt at that time. Um, and the Tories won by 5.2%, which was the largest swing since 1945. Uh, so again, the shows, you know, the media played an imp increasing role in the election due to all these factors. Now, a little counter-argument comes handy due to valence theory, which essentially states that voters, um, essentially, when they go to vote, they look at the economy and they say, is there an improvement in the economy or is it doing worse? If there's an improvement, uh, they keep the same party. If it's doing worse, vote the other party in. Now, uh, next election, 1997. It is called a media election, uh, this one, so let's say it has a big uh, role in it. Now, let's uh, analyze why. So, in 1997, the economy was stable. There were similar party platforms for both of them. And in 1996, Labour uh, polled over 60%, whereas the Tories polled at 21%. Now, in 1992, Labour actually uh, lost, and the Sun declared it's the son that won it uh, for the Tories. Now, Blair was very conscientious of this, uh, and he actually courted Rupert Murdoch on his Australian yacht um, uh, to get his support. Needless to say, Murdoch supported him. Now, this meant that the son backed uh, Labour. The son, by the way, has backed every winning party since the 1970s. And uh, the Times, the more conservative newspaper of Murdoch, um, decided to be more positive about Labour than the Conservative Party. This led to the biggest increase in Labour voters coming from the Sun readers, uh, and over half the readers um, of the Sun voted Labour. And the largest collapse of votes for the Tories actually came from the Times readers. Um, yeah, in interesting stuff. Now, uh, again, we saw an influence of spin doctors in the 1997 election too, again, showing the um, how seriously the Labour campaign took uh, the role of the media. Now, Blair hired Alistair Campbell, who kept the media on message with ready packaged stories, ensuring that Labour uh, was seen to care about the issues that the public cared about. This led, of course, to the landslide Labour victory. Now, 2019 election, all Tory candidates had to pledge loyalty to Johnson's Brexit plan. There was a strict campaign run by the Conservatives to get Brexit done versus Labour's lack of clarity uh, in it. Now, Jeremy Corbyn failed to gain media support, um, which a lot of his supporters claim is one of the main factors in the election, due to the anti-Semitism scandal within the Labour Party. Now, social media played an important role in the election due to uh, Tories' Dominic Cummings actually leading a campaign targeting voters whose votes could have been swayed. 
Um, for example, with messages like Johnson only needs nine seats uh, to get in. And Nigel Farage actually supported uh, for, you know, Tory seats in that area. Now, the Spress, Spress, yes, the, there was less media. Uh, was it, yeah, sorry, was it less media and more Brexit that uh, caused this? I wrote my notes in forms of questions, which confused me. Uh, and more disciplined Tory message and campaign, question mark. Uh, could those be factors? Um, possibly. Also, uh, in 2019, the uh, Tory party renamed their Twitter to uh, Fact Track UK, within very small print from the uh, Conservative Party headquarters, uh, again, showing that they were trying to be on brand with messaging. So, we've talked about uh, that kind of half. Um, at least of my room, because I've written them on two different sides of windows. Now let's talk about political parties. Slightly different topic. Now, let's start off with the Labour Party. Clause 4 uh, is one of its founding principles in the 1917 Constitution, which says, to secure for the workers by hand or by brain the full fruits of their industry and the most equitable distribution thereof. Common ownership of the means of production, yes. Um, however, yeah, Bernstein, Fabianism, uh, these things, but those are their founding principles. Now, what are the principles of old labor? Firstly, equality uh, of outcome. Now, clause four, uh, via nationalization of key industry, but this doesn't quite you know, equate to absolute equality, but it's close. Uh, equality of opportunity for, for education, health care, uh, and extra support for the disadvantaged. Three is nationalization of key industry, gas, electricity. Four, redistribution of wealth, influence of, uh, sorry, uh, in favor of the working class, taxation, and nationalization to achieve this. And five, it's a hostility to capitalism, unreformable, incompatible with socialism. It is. Now, uh, new labor, God, uh, <laughs> what are its principles? I, I don't know if we can call them principles, having any morality or anything. But anyway, they had a 169 uh, seat majority in 1997. Now, uh, equality of opportunity, right. Uh, free education, health care, opportunity to work hard. Yes, this is very socialist of you guys. Uh, free market capitalism, yeah, trickle down. Totally can provide tax revenue. Uh, let's believe that. Public-private partnerships, believe that firms are more efficient than the states. Uh, as Miss Bradley, as those of you who were in my... Um, politics class said it's the private uh, you privatize the profit and nationalize the debt uh now four is a light touch regulation off what and cma both saw their powers reduced uh five support the disadvantage yes you know he built schools and hospitals no they didn't cut single mother and disability benefits uh, and the working tax credit uh hand up not a handout now six Multiculturalism, pro-EU uh, immigration, uh, again, his campaign video, things are gonna get better. You know that video. Um, yeah, a lot, of, uh, a lot of emphasis on multiculturalism. Now, uh, Tony Blair, the tea bear himself, said, our task is to allow more people to become middle class. Oh yes, shop at Waitrose, don't you? Um, yeah, that's his task. So, okay, uh, new labor. Uh, what do they think about trade unions? Well, he, re uh, Blair, reduced the influence with one member, one vote, and cut out negative, uh, sorry, let out negative stories on teacher strikes. Teachers and nurse pay declined in real terms while business pay actually increased. What are their views on taxation? Well, it kept headline rate low, but increased VAT to 20%, uh, which was an immediate 2.5% rise for those on flat uh, incomes. 
Now, in which ways are they dissimilar from old labor? Uh, in which ways are they not? Is my question. But yes, uh, in terms of economics, they have an uncritical acceptance of capitalism and dropped uh, most of Clause 4's commitment to nationalization. They believe in a small state, state low regulation, safety net, net welfare, low tax, multiculturalism, uh, and not a class analysis of society. Um, it, yeah, let's sum up uh, new labor, one nation conservatism is probably what I would call it. Now, uh, let's talk about the key people in labor, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, his policies, he aimed for a greater equality of outcome. Yes. Progressive taxation. Yes. Nationalization of utilities and transport. Yes. Uh, I'm going to stop saying that because there's a lot of points, so I'll get out of breath by saying yes, and it'll just get kind of awkward between uh, the person listening and me. Abolition of private schools. Yes. Uh, I just did it again. <laughs> Free university tuition. Strong state regulation to mitigate capitalism. Anti-nuclear, anti-war. I'm attending his rally on Thursday. I shall see him speaking. More social housing. Yes. Keir Starmer. What are his policies? He lives down the road from me. I, I don't know why I'm telling you guys all this information. You really don't need to know it. Increase tax for top 5%. Clamp down on tax avoidance. Abolish universal credit. Abolish tuition fees. Nationalize rail, mail, energy, water, and end outsourcing. He wants to repeal the Trade Union Act and maintain union links, devolution from Whitehall, and replace the House of Lords with an elected chamber and promote pluralism. Uh, in which ways is the Labour Party, dis um, you know, kind of lack unity? What are its three main divisions? Well, firstly, the role of state in the economy. Uh, Miliband to Corbyn. So I'll shift to the left after the dominance of purple labour. And this led to a huge split in the uh, party, a disabling period of backstabbing 2010 to 2019, which they're still trying to recover from now. Counter-argument um, uh, to the fact that they're not unanimous is that there's a commitment to social justice, progressive taxation, but it's hard to see how the left wing can integrate with the third way. Now, Brexit is another thing. Labour MPs mostly were Remain, but um, some of their voters were Leave. Um, Corbyn didn't promote Remain, uh, left-wing, you know, didn't trust the EU. Now, defense, Corbyn's anti-war, nuclear, and trident um, split MPs and voters in the Lake District because a lot of their industry is built around nuclear submarine building. Um, and the left-wing anti-war, uh, only 66 MPs voted with the government over um, airstrikes in Syria. Tensions between uh, working jobs and anti-war industry is another thing. And there's plenty of MPs that supported the 2003 evasion um, and continue to support uh, you know, Anglo-US defense alliances, for example, NATO. Let's keep in mind it is Tony Blair and the Labour Party who decided to invade Iraq. Now, uh, the Conservative Party is next. 1834 is when uh, they were founded. And in Sir Robert Peel's Tamworth Manifesto of 1832, uh, he outlined progressive conservatism, which is um, to embrace change for the correction of proved abuses and the redress of real grievances, and to avoid the vortex of perpetual agitation. Change to conserve, darling. Uh, they slightly turned it into Joanna Lumley. Um, yes. Now... Disraeli, uh, main figure in the Conservative Party, he advocated for positive conception of government. He believed that the Conservative Party's duty was to avoid the country dividing into two nations. He recognized that the working class can be conservative in their beliefs. 
Now, One Nation Conservatism, let's talk about what it is. For most of the 20th century, the Conservative Party was conservative in ideology rooted in pragmatism and the belief in gradual improvements through experience and existing institutions. For example, uh, they don't like uh, large states, but they'll introduce furlough in 2020-2021. Now, uh, paternalist conservatism, uh, you know, they have the belief that authority should be centralized, but with a safety net. And Macmillan, political thinker, characterized this as a middle way between the U.S. ragged individualism and progressiveness. Uh, now, the post-war consensus saw both parties and kind of everyone agree with Keynesian economics, welfare, and internationalism. Um, for example, this you know modern repercussion is the EU. Thatcherism, the milk snatcherism, uh, to directly read off of my window. What is Thatcherism? That's the question. Andrew Gamble um, summed it up as the free economy and the strong state. Two core principles of Thatcherism is neoliberalism, strong state funding of corporations uh, and the self-reliant population. And neoconservatism is authoritarian conservatism, law, order, discipline, you know, stop them from having a revolution. Central themes are the privatization, reduce union power, low tax for corporations and the rich, high tax, low income, sorry, higher tax for those on low income, deregulation, the atomistic individual, there is no society, uh, tell that to the bank bailouts. Now, um, national patriotism is another thing, tough on law and order, and traditional values are all factors to consider in. Um, now, she reshaped uh, the Conservative Party and developed a strain of ideological purity, the dries versus the wets, um, and John Major's premiership was completely ripped apart by this, by post-war, uh, sorry, post-Thatcher, yeah, I mean, I, we could call it post-war, post-Thatcher politicians, uh, leaders that followed her, found a party completely, you know, strife with internal factions and personal rivalries. Now, next up in the our conservative list uh, is David Cameron. In which ways is he Thatcherite? Well, good question. Uh, economy, uh, yeah, he's economically neoliberal, light touch regulation, HS2, private firms, academies uh, where state-funded individuals can start a school and profit off of it, uh, and no tax rates rises whatsoever. Uh, hostility to the welfare state is another way in which he's Thatcherite. Uh, he introduced uh, universal credits, which actually limited the amount households can claim to £26,000. And the big kicker is you can't actually receive any of the money for six weeks after claiming it. You know, leaving a lot of people alarmed and, you know, starving. Um, which ways is he more one nation? Well, the Health and Social Care Act of 2012 uh, saw an increase in NHS funding, but, you know, it would be very unpopular not to do so. And he introduced the London Living Wage. Uh, in which ways is he progressive? Um, at least socially, you know, the 2013 Marriages Act. So despite deep divisions in the Tory party over this, uh, he did pass gay marriage, you know, good for him, Mazel Tov. Uh, Theresa May, now what's her economic policy? Well, she didn't raise VAT and she pledged to cut corporation tax. Social policy, dementia tax was a thing, believe it or not. I mean, it wasn't exactly called that, but ineffectively. It extended the right of government to take savings and your home if you received any care uh, at home. Uh, previously, it was only if you went into a care home and couldn't afford to pay for it, then the government could take you know, your property or something. Now, uh, she wanted to replace, replace, sorry, replace free school lunches with free school breakfast. 
Yeah. Not very kind. Uh, and she wanted to reintroduce grammar schools. Again, this is the whole concept of elitism. And foreign policy, well, uh, May was a Remainer, but she did have to embrace leave uh, in order to become the leader of the party. Now, for the current Prime Minister, Boris Bojo Johnson. Um, free market supports during crisis, e.g. COVID, Innovate UK. Uh, again, private contracts for PPE, but he did have pragmatism, such as furlough. Uh, again, he you know, can understand wage recycling. Uh, is necessary to keep capitalism somewhat alive. Why someone would want to do that, I don't know. Brexit, uh, like Thatcher, he's critical of the EU. But at least she tried negotiating better deals with the EU for the UK. For example, the Maastricht uh, Treaty, she you know, also managed to cut the uh, UK out of the Euro. COVID, is this an example of him being one nation? Well, he did recognize the... Uh, necessity of wage recycling and uh, the economy and uh, again this just uh, yeah, ensures that profits can remain high but um, you know he did resist mask mandates uh, until absolutely necessary so this is slightly less neoliberal because you know, neoliberal will be like you can never wear make me wear a mask you know I will be sick damn it um, <clears throat> shows the amount of coherent thought in their minds uh, I mean, the scary thing is that it is way too coherent, uh, and hence it's a whole economic model, but, uh, oh well. Yeah, okay, moving on. <laughs> Socialism, let's find a solution for all of this, right? Uh, okay, let's start off by talking about the key thinkers, shall we? Let's start off with, uh, I mean, the ganze Macherim, I, I don't know if that's plural, Macher. Yeah, the ganze Machers of uh, Socialism. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Uh, now, we're going to divide this up between human nature, state, society, and the economy. So let's run th- through them one by one. Marx and Engels. Now, in terms of human nature, they were uh, they believed that it was etur- uh, originally fraternal and altruistic, um, but it was contaminated by the material constraints of capitalism. False consciousness is instilled by the bourgeois values and myths. Uh, now, the existing state, in terms of the state, uh, existing state is the it works purely in the interest of the capitalist class and the accumulation thereof. Uh, for example, neoliberalism now, but uh, yeah, and uh, essentially its last uh, <clears throat> remnants must be completely abolished and replaced by the dictatorship of the proletariat, uh, which is only a short-term thing, by the way. Uh, society, the history is defined as class conflict. Society defined by its dialectic. Uh, communism would be a perfect end to history. I mean, it would just be blissful. Uh, economy, capitalism is inefficient and it's surplus in its surplus recycling. There's innate contradictions within it, which will lead to its own descri- destruction by creating, again, a revolutionary class. Common ownership uh, of the means of production is the goal. Rosa Luxemburg, um, the wonderful woman herself, believed human nature its fraternal and altruism uh, was still present in, the mo- in well, her modern day, but in proletarian communities mainly. But again, this is punished by capitalism. Uh, in terms of the state, it must be abolished by industrial action, a general strike, uh, and it must immediately be uh, kind of you know immediate democracy and elections should happen uh, afterwards. Um, society is class-ridden, morally indefensible, yet. 
uh, ulterior cultures exist within many working class uh, communities. The economy, its uh, capitalism is more resilient than Marx suggested, and solidarity and action require uh, for its abolition. Now, next up, Beatrice Webb, an evolutionary socialist, believes that violent revolution uh, can only compound capitalism's damage on the human psyche. This is human nature, by the way. Uh, and you, there's a need to gradually be guided back towards collectivism. Um, states, elected socialist parties, can harness the states to gradually affect socialism. Society, capitalist inequality, suppresses human potential while fostering regressive competition. Economy, it's essentially a uh, clause for <laughs> the Labour Party is what she believes. Uh, you know, and she also thinks, yeah, capitalism is very chaotic. I agree. Anthony Crossland, I've listed him as not a socialist, but, uh, you know, he's within the socialist topic. Human nature has an innate conception of moral objectives to outcome inequality. Yes. Uh, state. Democratic socialist governments, for example, labor from 1945 to 1951, prove that the state can be used to affect radical change. Society. Complex society due to new uh, classless groups, for example, the meritocracy managers. Economy, which uh, believes in public ownership and Keynesian economics, can ensure greater uh, equality. And now we're kind of moving to um, you know, position slightly left of Starmer. Uh, Anthony Giddens, I defined him as completely not a socialist, uh, and then underlined, you know, definitely not. Uh, human nature is shaped by social economic conditions. The fairness instinct now competes with individual aspiration. Uh, Giddens also believes that the state, uh, the existing liberal state, should be improved and decentralized and encourage more participation in it. Society believes that society has gone through a process of embourgeoisement. Uh, and we must take this into account. Um, for example, you know, saying, oh yeah, you know, it's in the benefit of everyone to, I don't know, be progressive. Economy, he's a neoliberal. Excuse me? Neoliberal? In socialism? What's this? No, what is this? Um, yeah, thinks that neoliberal economics provide increased tax to spend uh, on stuff like corporate subsidies and bank bailouts, but I guess he just didn't think about that. Uh, tensions within socialism. Um, human nature, while they all believe that it's malleable and plastic uh, by the economy, Marx argues that capitalism has installed false consciousness, and Giddens uh, believes it can, be, it can flourish under capitalism whilst establishing uh, socialist values. Society, they all believe it defines our behavior. Marx and the Frankfurt School believe society is so sick and incompatible with socialism for example, Fromm and Adorno, um, that revolution uh, would achieve the shock therapy that's needed uh, in order to basically save us. <laughs> uh, Beatrice Webb believes it can only gradually be improved with socialist values. Giddens and Crossland believe they can be improved alongside capitalism. Now, states, they all believe it's vital to the promotion of socialism, but differ in its definition. Uh, Marx... Um, believe in the dict dictatorship of the proletariat that will wither away uh, into communism. Webb, Crossland, and Giddens um, believe that the existing state can be used by um, constitutional reform. Economy, Marx, Luxembourg, Webb believe that capitalism is incompatible with socialism. The others are schmucks and not socialists because socialism, by definition, is not capitalism. 
Um, <clears throat> conservatism. Next up, let's run through roughly the same structure. Hobbes. He has a cynical view of uh, human nature, and we're selfish, operates on our will to power. I roughly kind of use that. Uh, I forgot the philosopher. Anyway, will to power, yes, uh, that we all act in our own self-interest. State arises uh, contractually from individuals seeking order and security, and we must and it must be autocratic and awesome. Uh, society. No society existed before the state. It was a state of nature which was nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, I don't know why he's picking on short people, but uh, oh well. Uh, economy. The economy uh, is not possible without state's guaranteed order. I can actually agree on Hobbes, uh, especially like now. You know, they say free markets, but that's when you see the largest states roll out in, in corporate funding. Anyway. Uh, Edmund Burke, next one, skeptical. The crooked timber of humanity is marked by the gap between aspiration and achievement. State, organic state that must be autocratic, driven by hereditary elite in the interest of all. Uh, again, this echoes uh, John Locke, actually, quite a bit. Uh, now, society must be organic uh, and multifaceted in small groups and communities called little platoons. Uh, economy, organic. Again, fuck it, he loves this word, organic. Organic free markets and laissez-faire, capitalism, le club med de l'économie. Yes, um, Michael Oakeshott is the next one. He has a modest view of human nature. Humanity is best when freed from grand designs um, and focused on daily routines. Uh, a bit like a horse with blinders on. <clears throat> uh, states should be guided by traditional and practical concerns, pragmatism, not dogmatism, and society, localized communities essential to survival, guided by short-term requirements rather than abstract ideals, economy, free markets, or volatile, might need a bit of pragmatic state moderation. Uh, next up, Ayn Rand. <sighs> Objectivists. I wrote this uh, with alternating capital letters and small cap letters to remind me to say this sarcastically ob- objectivist uh, yeah that kind of works guided by rational thought and self-interest um, our, ourselves again if you've ever watched a car commercial and you'll say that yeah yes it's rational you know you can, you know Paul Newman driving a car off of a cliff you know anyway uh, state the confine itself must confine itself to law and order resist any attempt of positive liberty, believes in negative liberty instead. Society, it's altruistic individual, uber alles. <laughs> Society must be resisted in any way, shape, or form. Any individual um, kind of uh, limitations must be uh, stopped, essentially. We shouldn't be free. Free market is an expression of the objectivist individual and uh, should be free from the states. Now, Robert Nozick, fun fact, his wife's name is, uh, sorry, when I said that, I was just thinking Will Smith saying, keep your wife, keep my wife's name out of your mouth. Um, yeah, Robert Nozick's, um, wife is called Gertrude Schnackenberg. Uh, I thought you guys might appreciate that. A poet, I've actually read a poetry, it's good poetry. Anyway, Gertrude Schnackenberg. Robert Nozick, uh, egotistical, um, uh, human nature, driven by self-ownership. Uh, desires. 
State, minarchist state, should merely renew, outsource, and reallocate contracts to private firms offering public services. Society should be geared to the individual self-fulfillment. Small communities would reflect uh, personal states and philosophies. Um, economy, minarchist state should detach from economy and merely just attribute, uh, sorry, arbitrates between disputes of private firms. 44 minutes, 13 seconds have just passed of me explaining all of this. Hope somehow this helps. Um, good luck on your exam tomorrow morning. I mean, I mean nobody's really going to be listening to this besides myself because, well, you know, <laughs> I should make friends first. Uh, anyway, all right, good luck to yourself and uh, yeah. Good luck.